Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. This is a really special episode of the show for me today, my friends, because I have the pleasure and the honor and the joy of welcoming to The Tanya Acker Show someone I have known for 29 years since our very first day of law school, like back when we were little kids. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Chris Henning. She is author of Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. I have to tell you, my friends, this has been her passion since we were baby lawyers uh, almost 30 years ago. Uh, Welcome to the show, Chris Henning. Oh my gosh, Chris, it is so much fun to have you here. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here. Just absolutely wonderful to to be in your space and talk about this incredibly important issue. So thank you. So let's just jump right into it. At the very beginning of your book, you tell the story of a young man named Eric. And uh, I'm not going to do any spoilers here, but just tell us, I mean, since it's the first story in the book, I don't think we're giving away too much, but just tell us a little bit about Eric's story, because I think that it so encapsulates everything that this book is about. It definitely does. So Eric is a 13, or he was a 13-year-old boy who on a Saturday night was watching a movie, and he sees someone with a Molotov cocktail. And in his 13-year-old mind, he says, hey, that looks cool. I want to see if I can make something that looks like that. He goes to the kitchen, he grabs a glass bottle, and he begins to pour liquids into the bottle, whatever he could find, bleach, pine saw, stainless steel cleaner, water, whatever. And he this is the favorite, my favorite part of the story is he then takes a piece of toilet paper and runs the toilet paper from the inside to the out and closes the cap. Now, in our adult minds, we recognize there's no way this toilet paper is going to serve as a wick. Um, it will burn out before it even reaches the cap. So he's just playing. He hasn't researched what a Molotov cocktail is, and he doesn't want the liquid to spill out on his mother's white carpet, so he slaps the bottle in his book bag. Again, this is a Saturday night. He completely forgets about it. Monday morning, his mother drives him to school, and he puts his book bag on the conveyor belt. And a school resource officer immediately says, hey, what is this? To which he responds, oh, that's nothing. You can throw it away. Eric goes on to class. And the next thing you know, police officers show up at the school. The fire department shows up at the school. They arrest him and yank him out of the class, embarrass him in front of everyone. And that began for him a nine-month ordeal in juvenile court. That's how I met Eric. Um, I represented him for all of those nine months while we spent, you know, tons of money, uh, the city spent tons of money for us to hire experts to prove this wasn't liquid, um, this wasn't a flammable liquid. And so, but Tanya, really what the kicker is, that story in and of itself, we could pull so many threads about that, right? But here's the kicker. Some months later, I was back in New Haven, Connecticut, giving a lecture and at the end of my talk, a, I was sharing during the talk, I was sharing Eric's story. And at the end of the talk, a white woman comes up to me and she says, my son did 
the exact same thing. And I asked her, so what happened to your son? And she said he was placed in accelerated science classes. So what a drastic difference in how Eric was treated and how this young white boy from Connecticut, from New Haven was treated. So it says so much about our country. The story about the young uh, white man in New Haven is interesting because then it sort of belies the notion that all of this vigilance toward Eric was about school safety. I mean, there's actually a quote in your book, something you say in your book. We are not just afraid of school shootings and we're not just afraid of children with guns. We are afraid of black children. Period. (laughs) How true is that still? unequivocally true. I mean, you see racial disparities throughout every single stage of the juvenile and criminal legal system, from the point of arrest to decisions about whether or not someone is dangerous and needs to be held in secure detention while they await trial. You see racial disparities in trial outcomes based on the same facts. You see racial disparities of young children at the sentencing or the disposition phase and in the critical decision about whether or not we're going to transfer a child from juvenile court and prosecute them instead as adult courts where they can can be held in adult prisons with adult inmates. So it's unequivocally still true. Black children are criminalized in, in every aspect of their normal adolescence. And I have to say that Uh, Most people think when I talk about severe sentences and transferring children to adult court and even arrest and pretrial detention, people are assuming that I am talking about serious violent offenses. And the research shows that very few children of any race are engaged in the types of violent offenses that we're most afraid of you know, murder, rape, serious aggravated assaults, but that the vast majority of young people including Black children, are arrested and prosecuted for normal adolescent behaviors. And the more uh, minor inconsequential or the more adolescent the behavior is, the greater we see the racial disparities. So we're just so intolerant of Black children. Let's pick that apart for a second. And so let's put aside the vast majority um, of these offenses or alleged offenses that you may properly describe as, as minor. What about the ones that are not minor, even if it's a small majority? I mean, Chris, you know, I saw a news report um, on national news last week about a school. I think it was in Pennsylvania. It was a high school where three people were shot in one week. Um, There's obviously a big correlation between the sort of socioeconomic disadvantage. There's a correlation between that disadvantage and race. Isn't there something to be said about the need to protect young Black people from other violent young Black people in some of these communities? So let me be clear, all of us want public safety, right? And we want all of our children, Black or white, to be safe in school and out. But here are several layers of problems, right, with that central focus, one of which is We have to be careful not to make policy based on these outlier incidents or even upticks in crime. And it is true in this uh, sort of pandemic world with so much stress and anxiety, 
that we're all facing, that there has been an uptick in crime. It's really important that we not make uh, drastic policy shifts based on that. And we saw that happen in the 80s and the 90s when there was an uptick there. And we literally had the war on crime and the war on poverty was a direct target towards Black children. And they were demonized in that movement. In fact, there was the pseudoscientific super predator myth that the America was going to be run amok by Black children who were out to rape, maim, and kill. And that never materialized. So that's one point that I really want to make. I think another point that I want to make is, yes, we have to respond to serious violent crime, but the question is, how do we do so? And we seem to figure out how to respond to high-profile uh, violent crime by white children a whole lot more sensibly, effectively, compassionately than we do for uh, uh, Black children who engage in serious violent offenses. And so throughout my book, I try to draw some of those contrasts, right? This isn't in the book, but think about Dylan Roof. I knew it was coming. When you said young uh, white people, I'm like, I don't even know if Dylan Roof was, uh, he's not as, he was not a little kid, but- He wasn't a kid. Yeah, please make the point that you're about to make about Dylan Absolutely. Roof. Absolutely. And so the, the reason why Dylan Roof isn't in the book is solely because of his age. And I'm trying to focus on adolescence, but it's such a, it, it beautifully paints the point. You shoot up a black church, right? In racist language. And yet, and still, you are brought in alive. Let's start there. You're not shot dead on the scene. <laughs> and that, you know, they're the iconic photographs of him being driven through a, you know, fast food, you know, line. Um, and he's, you know, alive and entitled to due process. You think about Rittenhouse. Like, there's just so many examples, right, throughout. Um, and those of you, you know, think about Cameron Terrell. I don't know if people know that story. This is the, the white male who uh, was arrested and charged with murder. And his defense theory is, oh, no, 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 I'm not part of a black gang. Instead, I'm just studying black culture, right? So I definitely write about that story. And, and of course, the, so an innocent bystander was shot in a purported gang-related killing, and the, there were two black males and one white male, Cameron Terrell, and of course the black children go to jail, get you know, incarcerated, and not only is Cameron Terrell found not guilty, guess what? He was out pending trial right? Out pending trial in the community at the time. And his position was, and he was the getaway driver uh, for the two. So there's just, we, we know how to respond to violent crime. The other thing that's really uh, worth saying is that we can improve public safety through non-traditional law enforcement approaches. There is evidence-based strategies for engaging uh, young people, young people of color in urban communities through violence interrupters, credible messengers who are people who have been previously involved in the criminal legal system, who turn their lives around, but can really relate to the conflict and the violence 
and the, the discord in the community and go back into those communities and work towards a reconciliation. Um, and so, so there are strategies, but for black children, we rely on the most draconian responses to adolescent offending. Whereas with white children, we give them the benefit of the doubt. We uh, employ rehabilitative responses and we're humane when white children commit even serious offenses. There's been a good deal of research that uh, black children, uh, boys and girls, are viewed by non-black people as older than they actually are. Uh, tell us what you know about that, Chris, and tell us how you think that plays in um, to this whole notion of hyper-criminalizing kids. Absolutely. There's been some wonderful and insightful research by Dr. Philip Atiba Goff and some of his colleagues finding that indeed both police officers and civilians perceive Black children as older than they actually are. And by 4.53 years or more, this is significant. So think about a Tamir Rice, 12-year-old boy, baby face when you look at those photographs, and the police officers uh, get a radio run for a Black male with a gun. Uh, later, we learned that, the, that they were also told that it was, or that at least dispatch was told that it was probably fake and probably a child. Well, that information doesn't get to the officers, but the reality is it wouldn't have mattered. Within less than three seconds of their arrival on the scene, Tamir is shot dead. And what did the police officers say during interview after interview about why they shot him? They kept indicating that he looked older than he actually was. They talked about his size 36 pants and his extra large jacket, and they just couldn't see his 12-year-old face. But the research tells us it wasn't just Tamir. It was our cognitive shortcuts, our racial biases really are so deeply embedded. And we see Black children as older. Other research shows that we see Black people, Black males in particular, as stronger, taller, more muscular, heavier than they actually are. With Black children, even as young as five years old, now this is really painful, Tanya, but there's research showing that uh, people are likely to mis misperceive a baby's rattle, a baby's rattle as a gun. Get out. In the hands of a child, a Black child, as young as five years old. Powerful research. How is any of that correctable? So if there are these sorts of facts on the ground, how are you ever going to normalize life for young Black children, uh, for Black children who are in environments where people are going to look at them and assume uh, that they're up to no good? How do you correct and normalize that, Chris? That is the million-dollar question, right? And we need an entire cultural shift in our country so that we all recognize Black children as children. So how do we do that? I mean, it's going to take ownership and individual responsibility. And I have to say, it's not just from people that we can write off and label as racist, right? It's all of us. The stereotypes and presumptions about Black children 
fears of black, about black children are so deeply embedded in the American psyche that even people who are committed to democratic ideals, racial equity, are still um, influenced and impacted by those racial biases. So what do we do? I mean, part of it is those of us who are willing to get proximate, right? To get close to young black children and see them for who they really are, for their humor, their creativity, for their intelligence, for their productivity, and for all the things that we know about adolescents. That yes, they're emotional and impulsive and test limits, but at the same time, they're resilient and beautiful. So you've got to get proximate. I like to say one of my psychologist friends taught me that every black child or every child in America needs one irrationally caring adult, that one person, right, who will uh, support them and stand by them no matter what mistakes they make. And we know they'll make mistakes. We all did when we were teenagers. But that's how we began to shift that narrative about black children. Also, in terms of how, like within police culture, we really have to learn to slow down. That our, the research tells us that our biases are most active when we are in these split second decisions, right? When information is limited and we're called to make a choice. But so many of these police encounters are, are split second decisions because we make them so. Right. And that if we would just slow ourselves down and our thinking down and particularly with the Tamir Rice shooting, everybody you know, talks about, well, you can't, you know, Monday morning quarterback. Well, we should Monday morning quarterback that. And we could see that those officers rode up in a car and they got right up on that gazebo in Cleveland. And if they had just stayed back, right, slowed down, parked at a distance, gotten out, ducked behind, you know, bulletproof police door and yelled out instructions, Tamir Rice would have complied and he was beginning to comply. So we have to slow things down in those immediate moments. So we're talking about how a lot of folks see young children, Black kids, as older and, and criminalize them. Um, I, I wonder if you think that the flip side of that is that it sort of normalizes this distrust by young people, by young black people of authority generally. Like if you know that somebody is looking at you always, or if you know that somebody is looking at you and more likely to assume that you're up to no good than the contrary, how is that gonna impact how you engage with authority figures and, and, and broader society, Chris? Absolutely. And I cover that. I think it's such an incredibly important point that one, it's a part of my title, The Rage of Innocence. And then number two, I have a whole chapter devoted to, um, and, and the name is meant to be uh, provocative, called Contempt of Cop. So let me start with the title of the book. So, you know, for me, the rage of innocence more globally is the rage that every single one of us should have anytime any one child is deprived of that opportunity to enjoy the privileges and benefits of adolescence. But the more nuanced uh, uh, reading of the rage of innocence is exactly what you talk about. It is the rage that black children have when they're told day after day that they are bad, that they are criminal, that they are less than human. And like all of us of all races and all ages, we resist those negative labels and we push back 
and we speak out, right? Um, like we have throughout history in the civil rights movement, we resist these labels. But think about adolescence and think about how adolescents don't have the skills and the capacity to articulate their resistance to those labels in the way we would as an adult. So it doesn't come out as this refined, you know, explanation about unfair treatment, right? With the big words and the calm demeanor. What does that rage look like? Tell yeah. us, tell us about it. So they're impulsive and they're reactive. And so they might curse and they might use profanity and they might refuse to cooperate with the police because of that longstanding tension that exists between Black children and police officers. And it's a history. It's not just today. They are given this history. It's passed down through American culture because policing has been used to as a basis for oppression. And I should say, I want to be really clear, this isn't an anti-cop statement. What this is, is a recognition that the blue uniform carries with it the history of oppression. So even when a contemporary officer means well or is doing a wellness check with a, a Black child, they have to understand that that Black child enters that moment with all of this history. They have seen, Black children have seen George Floyd killed on television. They've seen Tamir Rice, right? They've seen and heard about Breonna Taylor. It is, you know, really difficult for a Black child who is an adolescent, who's impulsive, who doesn't have the cognitive control at that age. It's a part of normal adolescence. So they react and they react verbally. They run away from the police, which is also sort of vicious uh, cycle. Um, and police officers use that to say, see, I told you they were guilty. That's why they ran away. And no, 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 no. They didn't run away from you because they were guilty. They ran away out of fear and sometimes just out of resentment. I don't want to have anything to do with you, right? Um, and so we see that in police encounters. And I've been representing kids for 25 years. And when I look at body-worn police encounters, we see Black children getting upset. And, it, and we have to be careful. I'm not blaming the child. I'm blaming this structure, the social structure that in which we have over-relied on policing and that we have deeply embedded fears about Black children. And so they wake up and they know that they're being targeted, not just by the police, but at their schools, in recreation, in healthcare, and they resist those labels. They become hypervigilant, meaning they're always on guard and not trusting uh, police officers and not trusting adults. And so that's what you see in this reaction that they have to police officers. It seems, Chris, like it is so uh, necessarily self-perpetuating. I mean, mm. this is a conversation that I've had with members of law enforcement. I'm going to have it again um, with my cousin, African-American woman, police captain's mother to a young black man, mm -hmm. um, who I'm going to have on very soon. Uh, but how is a member of law enforcement supposed to know whether or not it is rage that is causing that child to run away, whether or not it is fear that's causing that child to run away, or whether or not that child did something harmful to someone else, and that's why that child is running away? You are right. I think that it is important that we do that Monday morning quarterbacking, but don't we also have to have some empathy for people who are on the ground making life and death decisions in the moment? Like, how do we balance that uh, from your perspective? 
Absolutely. I think it's a, it's a beautiful and fair question. And so, so here's the deal. We have to, when police officers are on the street, making split second decisions about whether someone is criminal or not, one, we can afford to slow things down more than I think people uh, tend to believe. But here, just forget, you know, uh, the scenario where there's a potential life-threatening situation. Think about just general perceptions of criminality, that what we need is a more laser, a more nuanced assessment of reasonable, articulable suspicion. So now uh, we lapse back into law school, right? Always, <laughs> really always. Yes, we do. <laughs> so, so here, you know, to make it plain, the law says that every one of us is allowed to walk about freely in the streets of America without undue intrusion by the police, unless the police have reasonable, articulable suspicion to believe that someone is committing a crime. And what we have done in society, though, now is we've so watered down that standard and so that officers can stop someone based solely on flight from the police. When the law at its inception was never meant to criminalize that. And in fact, you know, the Supreme Court has, you know, has acknowledged that flight and nervousness might be grounds to give an officer some basis for suspicion. But yet, even in that case, the, you know, our Supreme Court Justice Stevens acknowledged then that we have to be careful about the slippery slope because many people, many innocent people run away from the police either because they're afraid or because they have a, a resentment for the police. So we have to be careful about what we're relying on as a basis for reasonable, articulable suspicion. Nervousness, a black child is shaking. I, I can tell you in my own cases, uh, and I write about this in the book, that a black child who's shaking uncontrollably in the presence of the police is shaking uncontrollably because they are terrified of what they've seen on television with George Floyd. They're not shaking uncontrollably out of consciousness of guilt. And so there are some things, Tanya, that we just have to pull out of the rubric of suspicion given contemporary times. And so that is one of those things. Officers have to do deeper investigation. They have to have witnesses or surveillance to give clear indication or better indication that someone is engaged in criminal behavior and not just acting out of fear or their, their democratic right to, to speak out against the police for unfair treatment. Well, it's also interesting because now we live in a time, uh, you know, unlike when we were in law school, we live in a time where there is a digital record and we can yes. really see how people respond to different communities. So I don't know, storm the Capitol and some people right. will say that you're just a free, a First Amendment protester. Right. Storm, the, storm the Capitol, threaten to hang the vice president and desecrate one of the bastions of our democracy and people will defend you. Uh, run away from the police and people. some people might assume that you deserve the worst. Um, Absolutely. You know, where you really see a disparity and I know your book focuses on children, but... Tell us what you know about how this criminalization of young people plays out in the disparity in drug prosecutions, for instance. We know that young people of all ethnicities 
uh, are likely uh, use marijuana. Yep. Young black people seem to be more likely to be arrested uh, and charged with it and charged more seriously with it. What do you know or, or, or say about that? So I think it's a, a, a beautiful context in which to talk about racial disparities in drug arrests in those adolescent years. Um, because adolescence is that time of experimentation. And so, of course, every parent is afraid, oh no, my child is going to try drugs. And, you know, that's a, a natural fear. But research shows that actually experimentation, not addiction, but experimentation with drugs is a, a natural and even healthy uh, experimentation by adolescents, right? And we give white youth in this country the freedom to do that. Think about the hippie era and how prevalent marijuana use or drug use was during that hippie era. And we see that those young people grew up to be perfectly healthy and appropriate adults. But here's the, the, the kicker. What we have in adolescence is we have years worth of self-report data. So the University of Michigan and the Centers for Disease Control has been tracking adolescent drug use and other delinquent behaviors for many years. And that adolescent self-report data shows that white children experiment and use drugs at the same and often much higher rates than black children, yet you see racial disparities. Another really interesting data set is to think about marijuana in particular. Research shows that by the age of 18, 49% of teenagers by the age of 18 have tried marijuana. But when you think about arrest rates, you see black children uh, experimenting with drugs. And then the final thing I'll say about drugs and adolescence is think about the opioid crisis, right? And how Opi the opioid crisis is the first time in American history where we named drug addiction as a mental health crisis. And when we talked about crack and other drugs that plagued Black communities, it was a crime. It wasn't a mental health solution. People wanted to arrest and incarcerate drug-addicted Black mothers exactly. uh, who were pregnant. Um, because under a child abuse theory. Absolutely. No one talked about giving them help. You are very politically sophisticated. Uh, you sort of know what the major political parties, you know, what their spin is on crime and freedom and so on and so forth. What would you say that both sides get wrong? I, I know it might be easier to pick on one rather than the other, but, uh, you know, if you had leaders of both major political parties in front of you, and they said, you know what, Professor Chris Henning, you have been in this world for almost three decades. You have some credibility. Tell us what you think we're doing wrong. What do you say? So uh, we definitely know that the 90s, some of the most uh, draconian crime legislation came out of the 90s during the Democratic administration. Right. The, you know, the Criminal Justice Act of 1994 and others. And so he, here's the thing that we get wrong time and time again, one of which I have, have mentioned previously, which is that whenever we see an uptick in crime or moments of violent mass shooting, 
we react and we develop and pass legislation that's reactive and not thoughtful and not based on the science. And so, for example, when we think about adolescence and we think about the Columbine, the mass shooting in Columbine, right? That took place in a in Colorado in a wealthy white suburb. But the federal government threw billions of dollars into cops in schools, right? So putting police officers in schools. Where did those police officers go? They were far more, and still to this day, are far more likely to be found in black and brown schools or schools with a very high percentage of black and brown children instead of in the white suburbs. So, so one thing we do wrong is we overreact and through our legislation. And then when we apply the legislation, we do so in racially biased ways. So that's one thing. We also have passed legislation that treats, that fails to account for the science of adolescent development. What do we know about adolescents? Adolescents are resilient. They are amenable to rehabilitation. So throughout the 90s, the virtually every single state amended their criminal code to make it easier to try children as adults for more offenses at younger ages. That was an extraordinary mistake. And we now have evidence to demonstrate that the adolescent brain is different and malleable and can be improved. And so we've got to go back and undo that old legislation. And I think, you know, neither side has done that well. Are you hopeful? Uh, You know, it seems that there is a growing recognition by folks in the judiciary, by certain uh, folks in law enforcement, that we need a smarter approach to law enforcement in some areas. Uh, my colleague on Hot Bench, uh, Judge Michael Corriero, mm-hmm. said he ordered your book. He's really been a leader uh, in criminal justice reform in New York. Are you seeing more responsiveness by judges and prosecutors and uh, law enforcement on the ground uh, to the need to kind of recognize some of these implicit biases and police and enforce the law in a, in a, in a more fair way? Are, are you seeing move, positive movement on that front? I am. And as tragic as the, the killing of George Floyd was, it really created, it galvanized uh, a nation and it galvanized you know, international input and influence um, in ways that have been very impactful. So think, for example, about the legislative end there has been a, a campaign in many states for police-free schools. And that campaign, people, you know, don't, many people don't realize has been active for about 10 years, but yet it wasn't until the killing of George Floyd that a number of cities in June of 2020 began to vote to think creatively about reducing, either eliminating altogether police in schools or reducing the police presence in schools and investing in alternatives to traditional law enforcement as a way to achieve public safety. So we are seeing legislative movement. We're definitely seeing uh, judicial movement, right? We have seen in the Supreme Court, we've seen a greater recognition, not so much race-based, but a greater recognition of adolescent development. 
and definitely our wonderful Justice Sotomayor really sort of taking the lead and reminding folks that children are different. And we don't even need science to tell us that children are different. That has been really important, the shift in adolescence. And then at the state level, we're beginning to see slowly but surely state high courts recognizing that race matters. Race matters in questions, you know, Tanya, that we just talked about, the meaning of flight and judges being able to recognize, okay, I see that flight alone is not necessarily some indication of consciousness of guilt, that there are many other reasons that black children run So from the police. And so we're beginning to see movement there. I love that your co-host uh, was um, active in New York uh, uh, reform because New York has been, a, it has been really in the news for its success in raising the age of juvenile court jurisdiction. That's a critical piece of movement, of seeing children as children, remembering um, that children are vulnerable to peer influence, they're vulnerable to their environment, all of which contribute to their criminal behavior, and then more important that they're resilient and amenable to rehabilitation. So we're seeing it, I think, at all levels. Um, I think police in many jurisdictions are slowly coming around. I think what I worry about most, Tanya, is that the debate has become so polarized, so police find themselves on the defensive, but that when we all sit down with an open mind, and I mean an open mind on both sides, that we really are interested in the same thing. We're interested in public safety, and we need to think about how best to get there. We need to think in more nuanced ways about what police officers are best equipped to do? What are the limited areas and responsibilities that we need police officers to have? And then we need to relieve police officers from those things which they're not best equipped to handle, including adolescents and policing children in schools. I am so glad that you went to that point because I do want to leave with some suggestion of um, how we move this conversation forward in a productive way that's likely really to take root. I mean, uh, Chris Henning, author of The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. Why should everybody care about this? Why is it a Republican issue and a Democratic issue and a Libertarian issue? Why is it an issue? Explain to folks why it is something that impacts all of us, Black, white, Latin, uh, Asian, whoever. Tell us why this is important to everybody. You know, I say that this book is for anybody who cares about children and anybody who cares about racial equity. So I don't care which of those two, wherever you enter. But it, we are a country that has long uh, protected our children and valued innocence and, and uh, the joy of childhood. And we should give every single child that opportunity. Um, we should all care about it, regardless of what political ideology uh, that we espouse, if we care about public safety, right? Because how we, we know this, this isn't you know, rocket science. The way we treat children in their childhood has a tremendous impact on how they perform and engage in society as adults. So if we want a safe society with productive um, young adults, 
um, who blossom from childhood into young adulthood, then we've got to treat Black children, all children, like children, giving them the support um, and the care uh, that they deserve. And then also we're a country that is built upon, at least in theory, on principles of racial equity. And so, as I said earlier, we should all have rage at any, uh, when any one child is deprived of that opportunity um, to have the privileges and the benefits of healthy adolescent development. And there's another like bottom line, very pragmatic piece to this too, isn't there? Which is that we are spending incredible sums of money locking up children and treating them as hardened criminals when in a far more fiscally responsible way, in a much more efficient way, uh, we could treat them like kids and not spend so much money. I mean, isn't that uh, an important part of this conversation too? I love it. The utilitarian argument, the, the you know, the economic fiscal <laughs> you know, argument. Sometimes you just got to break it down for everybody Hello. and show why, like, you know, I don't care if you're like a, you know, white person yes. and whoever doesn't have any black children or know any right. black people. If you want your dollars spent more appropriately Absolutely. Uh, and more, more responsibly, you'll make sure that people aren't being policed and locked up for things um, that don't require it. Chris Hitting, I have known you for, again, almost three decades. This has been your passion and the fire in your belly uh, since way back uh, in our days as a baby law student. So it is my thrill and honor to have you here. Professor Kristen Henning, she is the author of The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. You can buy it right now. Buy it right now on Amazon. Buy it at your local bookstore. Get the book. Read the book. My friend, Chris, thank you so much for being here. I hope you come back. Thank you, Tanya. Indeed. Thank you. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody.